All right. Good morning, everybody. All right. The um, there is a handout, but you don't need it. Uh, the the thing is, is that uh, having a Bible would be probably most helpful. I'm going to try my best to read the Bible more rather than just talk about it as if you know it like the back of your hand. So, <clears throat> I believe we're in chapter 6, is that right? So, well, chapter 6 is kind of the conclusion of chapters 4 and 5. So, just kind of review, the Philistines conquer Israel, they take the ark away from Israel, which is a very, co- oh, there's my Bible, um, it's a very common practice back in those days. There's um, reliefs of uh, conquering armies, like processing uh, out with uh, the gods. So that's all normal, kind of normal for that time period. And then, of course, uh, it's taken into the Temple of Dagon, and Dagon is conquered by, by God, by Yahweh. Um, the yeah, so now they're freaking out, right? Uh, Dagon is the it, it's kind of he's kind of like the Zeus. He's like the chief god of the pantheon of the Philistines. Dagon has a son named Baal, which people have heard of that before, probably. Um, anyways, they're freaking out because now they have uh, I think it's tumors. And the ESV, but, but it's like, it could be, you know, kind of a leprosy type of thing. It could be, I don't know if Pastor Bukes shared this with you because he's probably more civilized than me. I uh, could be translated as like general warts. I mean, there's a variety of weird things that's happening to these people. So, they, they don't like that, obviously, and they want to get rid of it. So, this is what happens in chapter 6. Um, God has conquered the gods of the Philistines. And really, we need to make sure that we keep this in our outlook, is that when God is battling for Israel, he's battling for their hearts. And we see this in chapter 7, rather than in, in chapel so just you can flip the page to chapter 7 if you need to. But um, verse 3, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. Um, so he, he's, he's, he's doing this to get them so that they see him as their God and see themselves as his people. All right? So... In this kind of battle, the you know, this there's a battle going on between gods. All right, this is uh, this is not like a, you got to set my people free from the Philistines in a kind of like a political sense or social sense. This is a uh, the king and gods and leaders and gods were all intertwined at this time. So uh, the main Philistine gods here in this kind of these next few chapters, though, were Baal and Asheroth. Now, I, I understand I, I spelled Asheroth differently than it's probably in your Bible, but there's a variety of ways to, to spell them. Baal was the god of thunder, son of Dagon, I already mentioned that, and Asheroth was the goddess of fertility. And I think I mentioned that in chapter 2 because there's probably in the background, already in the beginning of Samuel, 
this fight between God and the, the Philistines' gods, the idols. So the fact that Samuel mentions to Israel, put away the foreign gods, shouldn't be too surprising because Asheroth is the goddess of fertility. And of course, now we already understand that God is the god of fertility, right? Because he's given Hannah a child. And now we're going to get the fact that God, well, and then God's already defeated Dagon, right? Um, and now we're going to find out that God can defeat Baal also. Which, of course, this is going to be a standing problem. Because we, we get that in the story of Elijah, again, the prophets of Baal. Uh, so even though God defeats these idols today, it's not like it goes away. Um, yeah, because Israel is, 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 the question that you have to ask yourself when you, when you read this is, um, is Israel as pagan as the Philistines? You know? And I, I gave a little quote from, uh, uh, like a commentary on this, is that archaeology has found out that even um, like in Jerusalem, all the way up to, I think it's the 7th century B.C., women are being buried with these kind of ceremonial wigs that copy the headdress of the idol of Asheroth. So it's not like, I mean, we have to, understand, we have to put ourselves in this context and then kind of look back even on our own time is that we always struggle with idols. This is uh, not a new phenomenon. We have idols in our lives that are demanding our allegiance and God is trying to fight against those. So, so anyways, so now what we happens in chapter 6, though, is that the Philistines are trying to figure out, is Yahweh or is God just a kind of a local God? Because you have a lot of local gods back then. The Philistines had their gods. The Amorites had their gods. The Egyptians had their gods. And is Yahweh just kind of the God of Israel rather than the God of the world? So they set up this scenario where they're going to. Oh, here I think I think I just I can read it. Uh, okay, so the leaders of the Philistines bring like the priests and uh, what they call them the diviners, and he's like, "Well, what should we do with this Ark of the God, or Ark of the Lord?" Okay, to, you know, because they want to get rid of these tumors or whatever they are, this plague. All right, they said, "If you send away the Ark of the God, of the God of Israel," that's uh, verse three, chapter six, verse three. If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? Five golden tumors, five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So this idea is that um, that when you... You're kind of giving back, you're giving back the affliction. So, what's that? In gold. Oh, yeah, so variety means, why is it in gold? Because uh, they're kind of paying acknowledgement of the fact that he's a god, and god, gods need nice things. But the idea of the tumors and the mice is really important because you're, like, you're solving the problem with the problem, and by, by kind of giving that problem back to the, to the god you're acknowledging that he has the ability to take it back. He gave it, he can take it back. All right? So, um, 
But there's more to the story, though, of course, right? Is that they're not quite sure that the God of Israel has done this, or is this kind of coincidence? So in order to make sure that it's actually the God of Israel, because if it's not the God of Israel, they're going to keep that ark. Okay, because they're going to, they want to have dominion over Israel. Um, but they're pretty sure, right? Now, the interesting thing is that, um, in, is in verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, okay, so they actually know the story of what's happened in Egypt. Which is, that's, that's very powerful. Because who should really know the story of Egypt? Israelites. And at the end of chapter 8, a little foreshadowing here. Um, verse 17, well, not quite at the very end, but pretty close to the end. Israel, when they get their king, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Okay. So, you have now also a tension or a battle between what has happened story of God's salvation. And what's happening is the Philistines are, are, they're understanding it almost as well as the Israelites understand it. But their primarily problem is they see God not as the one true God, but as a powerful God amongst the gods. Okay? So they kind of got it, but they don't. So in order to, you know, okay, so they're like, hey, we're not going to be like those Egyptians and harden our hearts against this God. We're going to be like, hey, you just kicked our butts. But just in case you didn't, we're going to establish this kind of ritual. So they make a new cart. Again, not only is it gold tumors, it's a new cart, so it's never been used. So it's kind of been set apart. So if you use religious language, it's holy. And then now... They, they have two cows, but the cows are very important. First of all, they're cows, they're not bulls. And, and what kind of cows are they? Milking cows, so they just had children. So their main emphasis is really on these children. So what this whole scenario is creating is that the Philistines are saying, is this a local god or is this the god of creation? Is this like the high god? Because if it's the god of creation, then he's going to make these cows do what they don't normally do. Because the cows would go right back to their calves. But if they don't, if they go right to Israel, then we know for sure this is the right thing to do. And, of course, that's what happens, right? So through that whole scenario is that they have, they knew that God is, is uh, who exactly he is. And now the interesting thing is, is that they, they follow the ark all the way to this place called Beth Shemesh. And, you know... I asked about this, but I never asked to see it. Pastor Bukes did show you a map, right? Th- that's kind of inconsequential, but the fact is it's, just, it's kind of helpful to kind of picture where these cities are. Is Beth Shemesh in there? It should be relatively close to the border of, of Felicia or, or the Philistines. So, oh, great. Is it on there? Oh, this is just the, t- the okay, yeah. We don't have the Philistine on there. That's good. All right. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. 
Oh, does the second one have a Philistine or the Philistine land? Oh yeah, right there. Great. And Beth Shemesh, right there. Yep, great. Yeah, because the uh, the gray line is kind of where the Philistines were. Okay, great. That's good. Yep. So it's right there. That's kind of where it winds up. Great. So it's on the edge, and um, you know the people are happy to see it, but then all of a sudden, you know, seventy of them die. And uh, of course, now we're, we're really, we're really, we have to make sure that we understand who God is in this circumstance. Because they're happy to see it, and what do they do? Oh, actually, I can't remember. Is it translated here? Why did they? Why were they struck down? It says they looked upon the ark. It could also be translated they looked into the ark. They just they were they were doing something they weren't supposed to do. We've heard other stories of the ark when people uh, touch it that aren't supposed to touch it. They're struck dead. I forgot his name. Okay, uh, when when David is bringing the ark to Jerusalem, yeah, it was about to fall over. That's right. Yeah, Uzzah, Uzziah, Uz, something or another. It's O-S. O-Z, I mean. It could be Uz. Oz. Anyways, the whole point, though, is that this demonstrates that even though it's the God of the Israelites, they are not to mess around with God either. This is important for us because when God answers prayer chapter 7 and 8, we must not see God like the Philistines see God. The Philistines think that if they do everything rightly, right ritual, right words, right sacrifices, God will do what they want. But that's not God of the Bible. The God is, God of the Bible does what he wills. So the fact is, is that he, even if you're an Israelite, you still can't mess around with God. I mean, you have to, you have to be in your, in your place, in a sense. Yeah, Marilyn. Those who were offering sacrifices that says in here, were they part of the 70, or were they doing right? You mean, uh, they were Levites. They were, Le- well, so the, the ones who actually come and pick it up are the Levites. The 70, it's not quite entirely clear if they were just the local, local Israelites or if they were of priestly character. But that's the point, though, is that the, the major point on this is that God is, God is the main character in here. And he will not be manipulated. Okay? And that's, that's, that's really what we're getting at. Okay. So that's how chapter 6 ends. Is that now Samuel comes back into the picture. I don't know if you noticed, but the last three chapters, the ark is the main character. And, and Samuel kind of left. Now Samuel comes in, back into the picture as kind of the driver of this. Well, obviously... God is the driver of the story, but Yahweh or uh, Samuel comes in and now has um, a main a main role. In verse fifteen, it says that they men of whatever that is found, they offered sacrifices. And are they the seventy who struck down because they didn't have the authority? No, 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 no. They, they, that's that's they're they're Levites. That's proper. So now now that now that the ark has come, some people. Again, we're happy. They thought they could, you know, 
Well, look into it is worse. Like, I mean, they actually touched it, looked inside it. Even look upon it, but the whole idea of looking upon it, would it not just like I see it. Well, actually, um, from, um, again, I think when David is bringing the, the ark to Jerusalem, there's a set, they have to, they have to stand. It's like, it's like 300 yards away. I mean, it's, it's really far away. People can't even come close. Again, what does that sound like? What's in the, okay, so we already introduced Pharaoh in Egypt in the back, right? In the background, who can, uh, Mount Sinai. Only Moses can go up the mountain. Only the 70 elders can come up with him. Everyone else can't come close to the mountain or else they'll be struck dead. So, Across the Jordan, there's that thing about first the priest is supposed to go into the Jordan and they stand there in the water to see. Then it says people were supposed to be like, yeah, that's it then. That's not when David brings it back. But yeah, when they cross the Jordan. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the ark is not a huge thing. So like, I mean, to be faithful to the word is to, I mean, you can't really see it. Only, only these people. So the fact that uh, these people from Beth Shemesh either looked into it or even got close to it, again, is a sign of breaking the boundaries that God has established. Again, this is really to kind of show that God is not manipulated by people. Yeah, Aaron. I guess about how, okay, so you're saying God is not manipulated by Yeah, the Philistines. Yep, exactly. So, so then thinking about other gods, is that the way that other gods work? That's right. So, so yeah. So, did it really happen? Well, yeah. That, I mean, back in back in these days, they had what they have an understanding of of uh, what we call idol worship. Is that you? Either you didn't do so. so either you're at fault for the unanswered prayer or the prayer that you know is answered no. Uh, which means you have to become, you know, holier. You have to like work yourselves up to it, or you did, uh, you know, did the incantation wrong. So that that's the thing is that God God listens to prayers, not incantations. That's that's how I kind of put these two side by side. So um, you hear this in Job. What is the advice of Job? Uh, Job's friends. There's something that you did that you just you're not confessing to. And then what else? There's God and God. Yeah. <laughs> so either you gotta fess up or God doesn't really care. And and that again, so this is now we have Israel as a very peculiar God because he's not manipulated by men. And what is he what is he? He's a God who loves. He's a jealous God after his own people. Um, in fact, what happens in Samuel 8 is a lover who has been rejected. We have Elijah and Mount Carmel, the false prophets of Baal, and they're cutting themselves to get Baal to act. And... Yeah, so try. And of course, what is he? He mocks them by. Oh, what is he taking up? He's, he's using the bathroom. Yeah, right. He's sleeping, wake him up. And again, for a lot of us, we're like, hey, isn't he funny? But there's actually a theology behind this, or another huge word, cosmology, how you see the universe behind what's going on with Elijah 
and the prophets. And that's what's happening here. So Elijah, to contrast this, says, pour some water on this. I'm going to show you that it doesn't matter how I do this. God loves, loves his people and he's going he's to take care of us. Now, the thing is, is that now this creates a very interesting scenario because there's two answered prayers in chapters 7 and 8. The first answered prayer is what? Save us from the Philistines. Samuel cries out, he sacrifices, and then God thunders, which of course shows he's more powerful than Baal, the god of thunder. So he's defeated Baal in this instance. But then what's the second prayer that's answered? No. Chapter 8. What's the prayer that I would uh, I'm using prayer u- loosely. They want a king. They want a king. Oh, so you should be very afraid of answered prayers. Sometimes God gives you what you want. And it turns out to be terrible. Now this is this is not something to be like, "Oh man, I don't want to pray to God." It's to remind us what prayer is, and what the relationship of God to his people is. Um, So, the Philistines see God as very kind of practical. When I need him, I can get him. He's very useful. The God of Yahweh, God of Israel, is not useful. He he just wants to be loved, and and he wants to love you, and he wants to be loved in return. The thing is, though, he keeps showing the Israelites how powerful he is, how faithful he is, and they literally cannot put away other gods. I mean, Samuel says, put away your Baals and your Asheroth. Oh, we will do that. We've sinned against you. God shows that he is faithful to his promise of taking care of them. You know, we need a king. Now, the thing is, though, the king the king's not the problem. The king is like other nations. That's the problem, like other nations. A couple of weeks ago, I already said that you get, you get a foreshadowing of a king coming, right? You get that in Deuteronomy chapter 17. I can't remember, I don't know if I put this in the outline, but Deuteronomy chapter 17 already foreshadows a king coming. The problem in chapter 8, for Samuel chapter 8, is a king like other nations, there's not just one way of kind of the governance of God's people. See, so the time of the judges. I mean, even before this, you have the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, then you have the time of Moses, the time of the judges. And, of course, the time of the judges, has that turned out real well? No. So it's not the structure that's set the problem. It's the heart of the people that's the problem. So the heart of the people in chapter 8 is, God, we really want a king like other nations. Samuel says to him, this is what's going to happen. But, Lord, we really want this. All right. He's already showed how much he loves them, how much he's doing for them. And the thing is, is that the story is told in Samuel, very similar to the story of what's happened in Exodus. They should know how this story is going to end because they've lived it as a people. But yet they don't. So God still, so there's two answered prayers. And again, prayer is kind of two petitions that are answered 
in positive. They get what they ask for. But of course, God could say to them, no, I'm not going to give you a king like other nations. But he does. Why? You know, I mean, we can make up answers. Was right, right? I don't know. Maybe because he, he, he uh, you know, wants to show them that there's going to come, I mean, he's going to say, hey, this is what I told you. Because uh, when do they actually become slaves? The outcome of the king. So in David is a very good, he's a good king. He's a God after God's heart, right? Solomon starts out great, ends with idol worship, and it's all downhill from there. Did he, didn't he come back at the end, though? Well, it depends on which account you read. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought he was buried with his father. Yeah, Chronicles, when you read the history of Chronicles, Solomon, I don't, I mean, it's like he barely does anything wrong. So, um, but yeah, I mean, in terms, but I mean, in terms of idol worship, though, he uh, brought in, I mean, Solomon brought in, brought back the high places. And again, when we talk about all his wives, we still think about it in terms of like just strictly polygamy. But when he brings in other wives, he brings other gods. It's, it's all about, again, idol worship. God is a jealous God, and he wants to have his people, and he doesn't like sharing them. Now, of course, he wants all people to be his people. And the way he um, has established his kingdom, but he's not going to share people with other gods. And again, in these three chapters, we see how he's fighting for them. He's fighting for their hearts. He is like, I mean, he's like a knight in shining armor. Holly. Um, uh, just speaking about jealousy, and like, you know, God, of course, you know, talk about God being jealous. But the people of Israel asking for kings like other nations are like getting into their jealousy and their... That's right. ...or something... They're unsatisfied with what God has provided. Exactly. So it makes you think about your own, you know, the times that you're jealous for things that... Uh, yeah. Or you, or your discontentment. Mm-hmm. Um, that you That's right. That, I mean, this story is about the human heart. You mean we shouldn't try to keep up after the Jones? Well, keep up, but, but even like, you know, the desire, even, you know, yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely right. Um, but, of course, you know, this can be done in so many different ways. I'm serious about that. I mean, you're, you're that's right. Well, that's, I mean, that's exactly right what they're doing, right? They're trying to keep up with their neighbors, right? Yeah, keeping up with their, the Joneses. Hey, we want guys like the other guys, you know? Every, hey, everyone's got a 10-speed bicycle. Why can't I have a 10-speed bicycle, Mom and Dad? You know? But, Pastor, who was, was uh, riding over Israel? Before they asked for king, were the judges? Uh, oh, now, okay, yeah, so here's the thing is that, so when we think about what's happening, yeah, so let's get to this question now in ver- chapter 8. I do want to go back to chapter 7 a little bit, but chapter 8, when they ask for a king, they want kings like other nations. God, of course, Samuel says it's a terrible, terrible idea because God is your king. The thing is, though, is that judges were ruling in the book of Judges and in the beginning of Samuel here. But of course, they, faithful judges are always judging in the way of, of God. So a king like other nations is the problem, but a king after God's own heart, or in the way of God, 
would be the faithful king. That would be King David. Because if, it, if it's just purely about kings, you have a real hard time answering this question about, like, why would he allow them to have a king in the first place? God's going to redeem the king. I mean, he's going to redeem this, the, the monarchy in King David. But also, too, is the, the idea that um, if God is, is uh, you know, if, if the idea of, a, of an earthly monarchy is really the fundamental problem, then just going back to the judges is the answer. But they can't do that right now because what's the problem with the judges? Yeah, saying the sons are terrible. In fact, that's what they go to them. They say, your sons aren't walking in your ways. Give us a king like other. That's a good reason to, have, to not have uh, judges. They're corrupt. So, yeah, they're at this point now where they're like, anything is better than this. But, of course, a bad judge and a bad king, the solution isn't like, a, the solution to bad judges isn't getting a king and the solution of a bad king is getting a democracy. The solution to all those is returning back to God. Returning back to the covenant that God has made. And that's what God's trying to do with all, all of this. He's, he's fighting the Philistines. Uh, when Samuel says, um, to love with your whole heart, that goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. That goes back to the, when Moses saves them. He wants them to love him with all their hearts, you know, soul, strength, body, everything. So, um, so the king, for them asking for the king is not the problem. But if they said, give us a king that walks in your ways, that's an entirely different question than give us a king like other nations. One is completely self-referential, turns, turned towards man or to the earth. Another one is turned towards the divine. Pastor. They're not to be like other nations. Moses giving the law, they're consecrated, set apart. That's exactly right. So, so what we're going now is they're going against who they were. They're basically asking God, do I really have to be your child? Or, which I think is really more prevalent, is do I have to be your spouse? So Israel is just saying to God, can I get a divorce? You know, which, of course, is sad. It's, you know, it's tough. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a... Uh, think about it this way. God saves his people from the Philistines. That's saves. That's a salvation. But once he saves them, it's not like they can just do whatever, right? He saves them precisely, as Pastor said, to be his people, to be his spouse, to be his children. So then you have an ongoing relationship with this God, and it's going to look unique because God is unique. He's not like other gods. He's he's above all gods, right? So he is the one God. Of course, we should know this because in Exodus 3.14, Moses says, what's your name? I am who I am. I am the. I am the one. I alone am. So this is a uh, you know kind of. A, I mean, this is a tragic story going on right now. God is vanquishing <laughs> Israel's enemies, and in trying to enrapture Israel's heart, and they're kind of like, eh, all right. 
I really would like to have a, you know, be like other people. And of course, that's sad, right? Because he just showed them when you're like other people, you 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 lose out. I mean, it's it's not good. It's, it's a sadness. So, um, you know, just a couple of things. I think I already mentioned this. You know, so when God responds, okay, so Samuel, uh, the okay, so Israel comes together in chapter seven, verse four. I'm sorry, verse five. Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. Samuel judged the people. Now, verse 7 is is important. Just to kind of give you like a frame of mind what's happening. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Okay. So what happened at Mitzpah? Did they, is it a worship service? Or is it a rallying battle cry? Again, Philistines, exactly. This is all about repentance, coming back to God, and the Philistines say, ooh, they're getting ready to destroy us. Okay. um, After they sent back the ark, because, you know. Right. Yeah, so now, now they think, because that's how they think. That's how the Philistines think. The Philistines are thinking, oh, we, we're, we were going to vanquish them, so now they're going to vanquish us. God is not really, he does not really care about the Philistines. Oh, I shouldn't say that, but I mean, he, his, main, his main emphasis right now is not the Philistines. It's the heart of Israel. But of course, the Philistines misunderstand this because they have a frame of mind that God, they're, they're reaching out to God so that he, so that, uh, he can do something for them. All right? So if Philistines just stayed home, this would have been an entirely different story. But they, so now, of course, when the Philistines show up, Israel's like, Ugh. Now, you have to ask, do they know how the ark showed up? That's not, that question's not answered. So to a certain extent, they think the Philistines are going to kick our butt again because they just did. So what happens... Um, in verse 8, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he might save us from the hand of the Philistines. At least they got it right. That's true, right? But yeah, I mean, he already, he already did. He already saved them. So this is, again, another relationship-building sort of exercise. And the Phil- so Samuel offered a burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. This is really important for us. Just like, what, what was God's advice to the Israelites when they were going to pass through the Red Sea? It's one of my favorite, like, things I say to my children. I, all you have to do is nothing. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will fight for you today. All you have to do is, is, is stay silent. I love, I always tell my children, all you have to do right now is nothing. Just sit still. Or don't, don't push your sister over. 
don't, don't, don't say some really piercing words to your brother. You know, I mean, like, you literally have to just nothing. So in Samuel in this battle, what does Israel do? Nothing. I mean, we don't. I mean, they don't, we don't really know. I mean, God thunders and routs them. Now, did they? I mean, I, we don't know, but I'm assuming probably from like a literal perspective. I'm sure Israel was fighting, like using swords and things. But there's, well, it, after after yeah, after God routed them. Yeah, right. So, the, but the emphasis is not on Israel, but it's on God, right? So that's important. I mean, Israel had to walk through the Red Sea in order to get to the, you know, so, but, yeah. Is there not a confession of two parts here? With confession uh, of sin and coming back, gathering worship and absolution, but also confession of faith. Uh, don't, pleading uh, uh, on Samuel on behalf to be their representative and speak them before the Lord even as they pursue that's right. Yeah. So yeah, the uh, the cry, it's a cry of repentance and salvation. Yeah, I got that down there. The cry of Samuel for Israel is repentance, uh, and then it's a rightly relating to God. So then you have the uh, the, the absolution built into there. The, the relationship is restored, right? So God is faithful, and the people trust Him to be faithful, and so that's the character of this relationship moving forward, and that actually happens here. And that's why chapter 8 is so tragic. How quickly we forget. Yeah. But again, though, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's actually helpful for us, I mean, because we don't sit in judgment of these people. We should be sitting in judgment of ourselves. So this is where we are never, there's never a day where we don't turn towards God. And I think I, think I wrote that down, right? Oh, yeah. When God saves Israel, there's always a response. Worshiping God always involves discipleship. Will they follow the one God, or will they follow the easier substitutes? Does Israel desire to be the peculiar people God chose them to be, or do they want to be like other nations? That is what we do every day. And of course, as Lutherans, we say, every morning we make the sign of the cross, remember our baptism, say our prayers. That's all the same. I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all the same. Because we are confessing our sins, receiving absolution, and living in faithfulness to Christ. There's a hand over here. Julie, do you have a Well, I guess two things. Um, I think a lot of what you were saying, that you didn't have a lot of things. Yeah, technically, they don't really know what that is because it predates some of the purification rites that are later on. So, yeah, it has to do with, it has to do with cleansing. Good, good. All right. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. Because then there's a foil to this at the end of chapter 8. Um, verse 20. So this, this, this is the full, full answer of your question, Julie. Uh, okay, so then they say, No, but there shall be a king over us that, that we also may be like all nations and that our king may... Judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Okay, so Samuel now, he's, we know he's a prophet. You know, he's a priest and he's a judge. Samuel, for all intents and purposes, is king.
king. I mean, again, if you think about who has the most authority of all Israel right now, Samuel. So Samuel was a judge insofar as the kind of the office of judges in the past. So he would, he would uh, judge. In fact, he, he you know, had kind of a circuit of judging the three cities. So, yeah, he would decide. Now, there's, there's debate, I guess. I, I never knew that until I started reading commentary. I, I thought it was just he was like a judge, like the old judges. But um, uh, but he was, yeah, he, he was a little bit more than just the, the, the judge, like Samson or, you know, the judges of Old Testament, because he also was the, the prophet and the priest, too. So when they asked for a king to judge over us, and that's why Samuel's like, or God says to Samuel, they're not, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Because Samuel doesn't think it's like, you just, you just said right in my face. You, you don't want me to judge, you know? So, yeah, he's, just, he's uh, acting as a judge. There's also the question about, because um, Shiloh's been destroyed, so, like, is he going around offering sacrifices? The whole, the whole, re- so, in a sense, he's bringing this, this presence, this, this uh, prophet, priest, judge presence in this area. Jan first, and then Nancy, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that Moses set up a hierarchy of judges, and right. unless they threw that out at some point, I would imagine that it was still in place. Oh, yeah. We were, talk, we were talking about Samuel being the chief justice. Yeah, sure. Yeah, now, again, thank you for bringing it up, too, Jan. <laughs> so when now at this moment that Samuel judges, he's prophet, priest, and judge. Who else is he like? But Moses. Well, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, before, before. I'm kind of looking backwards. He's, he's basically carrying the office of Moses. Again, holy smokes. God has saved his people from slavery, from bondage. He has a Moses-like person amongst them. Because Okay, so when he, he's declared judge, all these things should kind of go off in our brain. Moses was the one who went close to God. He was the one who saw him face to face. He is the one who they cried out, don't let God talk to us. You talk to him and then talk to us. And they have this intimate relationship at Mount Sinai. And God has just recreated this. They renewed this covenant. And of course, just like Israel at Mount Sinai, they get the golden calf, right? And here they want the, the king instead. So, all right, Nancy. Well, since Moses, the only people who were allowed to be priests were the Aaronic people who were sent from Aaron. Right. And, I mean, this, they never really say that Samuel was in that line. Right, good quote. Yes, very good, yep. Um, I mean, so what I wonder is, like, had that kind of become looser? Yeah, so Eli, yeah, exactly. Since Eli... The the Eli's sons again is kind of like a nuclear bomb going off in the life of Israel. So now this priest, the priest, because uh, Samuel then takes over for Eli, right? Rather than the sons. 
No, right. So this is, again, so this is where you have this transition where most likely they were part of the same family, but the Eli's lineage within this whole group carried the weight, and then Samuel, because he was chosen by God, that changes. So again, think, I know it's very technical, but I mean, like, so thinking about the past, yes, he was probably from, I mean, obviously he was a Levite, but from the family of Aaron in some way. Most likely, yeah. But of course, yeah, you're right. I'm going to stop there. Because then you could, go, you could go on to like, yeah, okay. It's, Ali. Well, that I've discredited Samuel then to people, and that's why I didn't see him as... No, well, no, you mean right now? No, 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 no. Now, now it's the heart, it's... Oh, okay, so I forgot to mention. Okay, so Philistines say, let's not harden our hearts. And what has Israel done? Harden their hearts. That's why they don't see Samuel as he is. But to go back to the transition from Eli to Samuel, without, without the work of God in those chapters, Samuel would not have been able to, to kind of gain the authority that he had because the, the, it would have been the family of Eli. Of course, now we see this in here. What happened with Eli and his sons? They die, Eli falls off, right, cracks his head open or whatever, uh, breaks his neck or whatever. Um, and now Samuel's sons are no good. The thing is, is you, you have to ask yourself, why were they judges in the first place? So there is already at the beginning of this maybe a foreshadowing that Samuel, as much as he's prophet, priest, and judge, he's, he's still got a lot of work to do. I mean, in terms of his own heart. So there's already a, a kind of a foreshadowing of something that God is going to do to kind of transform, reform, or even um, kind of redeem the whole nation. Again, the judges were corrupt. They asked basically for a corrupt king. And God is going to give them that corrupt king in order not to destroy, but to redeem the king. And of course, again, David's existence isn't just for David, but for pointing towards Christ. So again, we are already, we should be like saying, oh, hey, Samuel's kind of like Jesus, but not Jesus. There's going to be another one that will come who will be prophet, priest, judge, king. And that, of course, is Christ. So, because he's the ultimate one who will come and save his people. God is continually saving his people, but it's not until Jesus comes along that they're actually saved from the slavery of their, their hearts or their sins. Yeah, gotcha. I, I thought it was interesting, really surprising, that the people had seen that God saved them from the Philistines. And um, it's like they don't remember that Eli had two worthless sons, and they were killed. Yeah, right. God raised up Samuel. Right. Samuel has two worthless sons. They don't follow the logic, so to speak, to say, well, God will raise up. Right. Well, that's exactly right. Somebody else, but they're like, no, let's take matters into our own hands and have a king. 
And of course, God does raise up a king, though, right, in David. I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's actually uh, something to keep in, in your forefront of your mind as you read Samuel, is that Saul, the, the next person to be king should be Saul's son, right, Jonathan? But it's David. So things, they're not, so already we, we know God's not going to rule, not going to let this be like other nations. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah, well, we know that now, but they didn't. No, that's exactly right. So this, be like, again, so God writes this for us. I mean, the Bible is for us. And so now we have to, we have to apply it to our lives in a variety of different ways. I was just thinking about prayer, but I mean, we could talk about how, um, you know, you think about like how we think God or we think life is going to work out, but yet maybe God has other people in our lives who could be our children. Or, I mean, like like for instance, Samuel and Eli, right? They have these kids, but Eli has another child, Samuel. He's given them. You know, so I mean, that's another way of seeing like how our future, how's our future going to keep going? As a church, again, well, that's a whole other issue happening in this text. Does Israel see themselves as just an ethnic group or the chosen people of God? So that's happening in this text. And I think a lot of us see our lives as Christians or even as Lutherans as like an ethnic group. When I say ethnic, I don't mean like, hey, I'm Norwegian, but I mean like we see it in a worldly, earthly sense not as a heavenly sense. Um, that's the other thing, too, that's underlying. When we ask God to be our God, do we want him to be a heavenly God or an earthly God? Because when they ask for a king like other nations, they basically make God an earthling. I read that somewhere. I thought that was kind of clever. Because um, they, they want to be like other nations. Well, the other nations' gods are, are, can be manipulated by them. Do we want a God who's in service, like, we'll just do what we say? Because that's what he does, right, in chapter 8. He does what they say. And even though he told them, hey, I'm going to let you know, you will be slaves. Great, let's have slavery. Okay. You know, I mean, it's like, what else can God do? I mean, besides, you know, force their will. But God loves us. He's not going to do that. Yeah, Marilyn. I just thought they didn't feel like they had the status of their neighbors by when they didn't have a king. They were, they and they. Yeah, that's yeah, definitely it. Like the rest of the world, or yeah, more powerful. Absolutely, that's exactly right. Yeah, they didn't have the status. Again, this all goes back to, you know, <laughs> I mean, if you really want to boil it down, it's it's like I said when, when kids say, "I want something like everybody else." Everyone has this. Why can't I have it? Now, of course, for a lot of that is, you know, it's just a 10-speed bike. Okay, you can have a 10-speed bike. But in this instance, it's, it's not just about a thing. It's about, again, it's about their relationship with God. Why can't I have a relationship with you like other nations have relationships with their gods? Again, as we read that, you're like, no, we don't want that. We want, we want this peculiar life because it's based on love and mercy and forgiveness but it's a battle every day 
for us to not be jealous of what other people have. Again, it, I mean, it, it's, it's all about the fruits of the Spirit, alive in you. There's a lot of things going on in this text. So, um, any other questions? Yeah, Krista. But, Pastor, uh, don't you think that's um, uh, the, the way it is today, that we are looking for other gods? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I kind of teasingly say that the, the God right now that we, we really want to sacrifice ourselves to is comfort. There's nothing worse than being uncomfortable. Now, you, I mean, think about what that means. If I have pain of any sort, I, you know, I, 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 I want to I, I get rid of that. Where God actually might be giving you pain because it's your cross. But that cross is self-vivic. Of course, how do we know this? How do we enter into that? Through prayer, just like Samuel. And I mean, this is what happens in there. We cry out to God, and God will answer us. But I, I think I mentioned this in Sunday Bible study. We think about pain like the pain of loss. And when someone dies, we, we are so we're hurting so much. And sometimes I'm afraid when people cry out to God, they say, I just don't want to feel pain. And they've shot so low. Because what's going to remove their pain is the resurrection of their loved one. And as, as terrible as the pain of the loss, we don't want, like we don't want, we really don't want that pain to go away. Because if we, that pain goes away, then what will it be to our memories of that person? You know, so it's like, that, that's kind of what's happening here. Is if God granted you no pain at the memory of your loved one, your lost loved one, of course. Would that mean then you, I mean, that would, would that sacrifice your love for that person? I mean, if, if I love someone and I lose them, I, I want it to be hurt. Because if it didn't, then maybe I didn't love them. And that pain goes away, then I'm thinking, I mean, I'm just speculating. I don't know, maybe. I mean, God could do whatever, take away the pain and still <laughs> keep those, I don't know. But I just, you know, I'm always concerned about that sort of stuff. And maybe that's Israel right now. Maybe Israel is, is asking for other kings because of some discomfort. And God's going to give it to them. And then they realize, ooh, I asked for the wrong thing. Yeah, I, you, know, I'm, you know, I'm into movies, of course. Has anyone ever seen the um, Jim Carrey movie, the, the Spotless Mind movie? What is it? The internal sunshine of the spotless mind. Whole scenario is he is he just loses his girlfriend or his, somebody dies. I can't remember. And he he hires this company to erase the memory because he hurts so bad. And when they do that, all of a sudden he's you realize it's it's a mess. It's terrible. And the the thing is, of course, at the very end of the movie. His memory is erased of this woman, but at the end of the movie, who, who sits down next to him in a, in a train? The woman. It, well, we, little did we realize is that she had erased him 
from her, her, her mind too. So they end up, so, but the whole point is, is that it comes to the end of the movie and you realize it's completely wrong. I mean, that whole movie, I mean, it just shows how the pain, we want pain to go away, but at what cost? And will it actually help? Or will you wind up right back where you started? Okay, anyway, so I think, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things going on in this text where I'm like, wow. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Carol. Oh, it's more of a comment. Yeah. Just wanting for pain to go away it reminds me of a case I worked on one time. It's a paraplegic. Who accidentally almost severed mm. his leg. Mm. He was using a chainsaw or something, mm. and he had no pain. Mm. He didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there's, there's a reason for that. Yeah, right, exactly. Wow. That's very uh, physical. Yeah, it's not emotional pain. I mean, the lack of emotional pain. Lack of physical pain and what, yeah, you wouldn't have a, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, so it's, you know, I think it's very hard to read the Old Testament, by the way. I mean, it's so hard for me to not just get caught up in the drama, you know, I always am like, so I, I, I love doing this Bible study for my own personal reasons where I'm like, oh, hey, yeah, that's right. This is what's happening. You know, it's kind of like watching a movie with someone who, like, can see all the stuff that's happening in it. That's what I always feel like when I learn stuff about the Old Testament. I'm like, I've read this. I've read this story, you know, 50 times. And yet I'm like, oh, yeah, huh, yeah, right. Samuel is a judge, and they're asking him for a king to judge. I mean, that was, that was kind of fun for me to learn. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, sure enough. Yeah, okay, anyways, last one, and we'll pray and get out of here. Donna. Well, I was just going to say, uh, there's a novel. Uh, it's called The Book of God. Maybe you've seen it. Yeah, sure. Walt Rangham wrote it. Yeah, right. And it's, you would enjoy reading it because it's a novel of the Old, uh, old Of the Old Testament. Yeah, right. No, absolutely, yeah. He talks about the relationship with God and David and you know, all the Old Testament characters, but it's, it's like a movie. Yeah, right. Yeah, so if anybody wants to, it's the book of God. The book of God, Walt Wingren. Wingren. Yeah. That's right. From Valparaiso. He was a professor there, right? Yeah. All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.